Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. It's good to be back from Ethiopia and with you. I'm mostly adjusted to being back. Thank you for your prayers while I was gone. I needed them. Uh, I did have a little bit of sickness while I was there. I had really long flights. Uh, but God met me and God met us. It was a great time. The class I taught, for those of you who don't know, I went over and taught a uh, week's class on pastoral ministry. So teaching eight hours a day. It was, it was like preaching eight sermons a day or something. It was, it was a lot, but it was so good. And the guys there are just some young men, hungry for the Lord, hungry for ministry, ambitious, uh, seeking God's will. And so it was exciting to pour into them. I, I want to tell you more about it sometime at a members meeting, but since we are praying for the persecuted church today, I, I thought one story might be relevant along those lines. Now, next door to Ethiopia, so I was in Ethiopia, the city of Addis Ababa. Next door to Ethiopia is Somalia, which is a very dangerous place to be a Christian there. Um, it's one of the most unreached places in the nation, and it's ranked the second most dangerous place to be a Christian in all the world, right underneath North Korea. Uh, and so it's obviously very hard to reach. It's very hard to get a Christian witness in there. Uh, it's illegal to become a Christian there, uh, punishable by death. And so there aren't many Christians. Uh, maybe only a couple hundred, they think, for the whole nation. So out of all that, though, there is a story of two men that are known who have become Christians there and left Somalia to go get a Bible degree to get a degree in ministry because they had the desire of going back to Somalia to start churches. Uh, and so there's only known to two men from Somalia that have MDivs uh, that want to go back. And one of those guys was a student in my class. And so I got to spend a week shaping and forming his thinking about pastoral ministry. And then his hope is to go back and start an underground church there. And so we pray for his safety and are grateful for his boldness. So I want to thank you for releasing me and investing in our trip and praying for me, praying for my family. Uh, the sacrifices, I think, were well worth it. This was a strategic investment, and it is so great to be a part of a church that's committed to spreading the gospel, not just in our neighborhoods, but in the nations and even in the hardest-to-reach nations. So grateful for that. Thank you. Uh, I do, I want to pray for, I want to pray uh, for my friends in Ethiopia, and I want to pray for the preaching of God's word. So will you join me in prayer? Our Father and gracious God, uh, we thank you for the many ways, small they may be, but significant they are to us, that we can invest into the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to see sinners saved. And so, Lord, we pray. Continue to help us to do that in our neighborhoods, uh, right here in our community around us, but Lord, also significantly and sac sacrificially out into the nations. Uh, God, we pray for the many nation uh, partners that we have. We pray, Lord, that you be strengthening them and their witness there. Keep them safe. Uh, I pray for my new friends in Ethiopia and the young men that uh, want to grow up and spread the gospel in Ethiopia, out into the you know, further parts of Africa. God, give them grace. Uh, Lord, I pray for a, a new week of, of classes for them, strengthen them for that. And now we turn, God, as your people, to your word this morning, eager to hear you speak to us. May your spirit be at work in our lives and in our hearts. Apply this passage to us, Lord. We ask, do not let us leave here without being changed. 
We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, as we continue our study through this gospel. Matthew 18, our text today deals with forgiveness. Jesus commands us to forgive each other from our heart, from the bottom of our heart. But today we want to look at what all that entails, what all that implies. Earlier this week, I was reminded of the difference between tidying up and cleaning up. The difference between tidying a room and cleaning a room. A room can be tidy, but still dirty, right? You can straighten up the cushions on the couch, but not clean under the cushions in the couch, right? You can sweep the floor so it looks clean, but you haven't mopped the floor so that it is clean, Kids, I know you know exactly what I'm talking about because your parents tell you, kid, go clean your room. And what do you do, kids? You stuff things under your bed and you put them in the closet and behind the dresser. So you've tidied your room up. It looks nice, but it's not clean. And a little secret for you. I do the same thing, kids, just to let you know. If you go look at my office right now, it looks pretty clean. It looks You could stick your head in there and say, this is a straightened up room. But if you open up my closet door, there's a mess inside. That is to say, you can straighten things up on a superficial level, like, say, my office, so that someone can look at it and say, it looks pretty put together. But it's not clean. It's not all the way clean. And this is like our Lord's admonition against cleaning the outside of the cup only. We are not to clean the outside of the cup only, but we must clean the inside as well. Meaning we are to refrain from trying to construct lives that look all put together, all good and religious, all tidy from the outside, but inside they're actually a mess. Inside there are closets filled with problems. Jesus doesn't want us to just have tidy lives. He wants us to have clean hearts. You ask, well, what's the difference between a tidy life and a clean heart? Well, a difference is a tidy life looks like trying to get good doctrine in order. It looks looks like going to a good church, like this one. It looks like uh, serving with the, bringing some of the occasional meal or giving words of encouragement. These sorts of things are good. These things are necessary. And yet they can very easily be a tidy life. You've straightened up the living room of your faith. Everything looks put together so long as no one looks in the closet of your heart. So long as no one opens the door to find all the stuff that you have stuffed in there. And one of the messes that we tend to stuff into the closet of our heart is that of unforgiveness. The skeleton in the closet is often unforgiveness. And today, Jesus wants to do a deep and thorough clean. It's time to clean out the closet. So our sermon title today is Unlimited Forgiveness. We're going to be talking about unlimited forgiveness. Our passage is Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. I invite you to follow along. This is what Holy Scripture says. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, 
How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, when he began to settle one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay his master, ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. In the passage that we uh, are looking at, actually the one before it, the passage that leads up to it, Jesus taught us about progressive correction of a brother who has sinned against us. This is what Merrick taught us on last week in verses 15 through 20. Progressive correction. Your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault. If he listens to you, you gain back your brother. You save him from his sin and you restore the relationship. But if he does not listen to you, you take two or three witnesses to establish the charge, to bear witness against him. And if he listens to them, you gain back your brother. But should he not listen to them, then you go and tell it to the church. A last resort, you tell it to the church so that the whole body of Christ may appeal to this brother to repent of his sin and be restored. The whole thing is aimed at saving and restoring sinning saints. It's a redemptive process, which Merrick taught us very well on. It's a grace-filled process. But after teaching on it, Jesus was standing with his disciples, and Peter came up to him. You know, good old Peter, good old put your, mouth in your, or put your foot in your mouth Peter, came and asked Jesus, all right, but how many times do I have to forgive him? How many times do I have to forget that brother that keeps sinning against me? And it's actually not a bad question. In fact, kids, you have probably wondered this about your siblings. You've probably thought, how many times do I have to forgive my brother or my sister? 
How many times can they annoy me? How many times can they pick on me? How many times can they pull my hair? How many times can they steal my candy? How many times can they use my toothbrush to clean the fish tank and I still have to forgive them? Teenagers. I'm sure you feel tested in this way towards your parents. How many times do I have to forgive them? Parents. I'm sure you feel this way tested with your teenagers. How many times do I have to forgive them? And in our spouses, and in our community groups, and at work, how many times? It's really not a bad question. Is there a limit to how many times you have to forgive them? Peter thought there was. Peter thought, yes, I think so, and he suggested seven times. As many as seven times, he wondered. That seems to go the distance. That seems to be a good measure, Jesus. What do you think? And this brings us to point number one, the measure, the measure of forgiveness. The measure of forgiveness. Like us, Peter wants to know how far this forgiveness thing has to go. It seems like it's got to have an end. It seems like there ought to be a cutoff to this. And so Peter suggests seven times. Seven's the limit. And he probably thought he was being very generous with that number because the rabbis in his day taught that you should not forgive someone more than three times. You should not forgive someone more than three times. They were baseball fans. It was one, two, three strikes, you're out. This was all based on some verses in Amos where God spoke about revoking punishment for three offenses, not four. So the rabbis reasoned, let's limit forgiveness to three offenses. But having walked with Jesus for a while, Peter knew that he, Jesus generally thought that the, the, the rabbis were stingy guys. Uh, they usually got rebuked. So he said, well, I better not say what they say. I better come up with something better than that. And so seven seems like a good number in scripture. Number of completion. I'll go with seven. I'll see there are three and I'll raise them four more. And Peter probably felt good about that. Except we all know what was coming next. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you, Seven times. You almost wonder if he paused there and Peter was wondering like, I went too high. I was too gracious. For once I was too, I was was way over. But Jesus says, oh, but 77 times. Ah, man, missed it again. So Peter's way off, not seven, but 77. But before we dump on Peter or even the rabbis for their little numbers, let's get honest ourselves. Remember, we're cleaning out our closets, not their closets. So, let's all admit how hard it is sometimes to forgive someone the first time. The first time. Not seven times, not even three times. The first time can be hard enough. So clearly, the 77 Jesus calls us to is both an astonishing number and a call to transformation. Jesus is calling us to be transformed. Now, we need to be careful here. We need to be careful here, lest we make 77 some kind of limit. Lest we make 77 some kind of limit. It's not like Jesus is saying, okay, forgive them 77 times, but once they hit 78, oh boy, you can let them have them. Jesus is not encouraging us to keep accounts. Some of you perhaps are stubborn enough that you would actually count all the way up to 77. Most of us aren't, but most of us still are good at keeping a scorecard. And some of us have memories like elephants. We just never forget offenses. But ask yourself, is that really how you want this to work? 
Is that really how you want this to go down? You want God to keep count of your score? You want God to tally up your offenses? Of course not, right? I mean, who wants that? Who wants God to keep track of all our offenses? None of us do. Which is why we love passages that tell us, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Psalm 32.2 The good news of the gospel is God forgives our iniquities and remembers them no more. Hebrews 8.12 God does not keep count. God does not tally up our offenses. God forgives and forgets. He literally tosses our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. Micah 7.19 You cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God doesn't keep count and since Forgiveness is imitative, since we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. Ephesians 4.32, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Since forgiveness is imitative and God does not keep count, neither should we keep count. So we shouldn't think 77 is a limit. If you think 77 is a limit, you're actually missing the point. It's not about the number. That's not the point. Jesus' point is actually the opposite of that. The point is the number is unlimited. It's an unlimited amount that we are to forgive. Forgiveness is unlimited. Okay, so you ask, well, then then why did Jesus say 77? What's the point of 77? If he wanted to say unlimited, why did he say 77? Well, and in some of your Bibles, you may have 77 or 7 times 77. I think 77 is the more accurate one, but ultimately it doesn't matter. It doesn't make a change. But I think he uses 77 for this reason. It's an allusion to Genesis chapter 4, where a man named Lamech boasts, I have killed a man for wounding me. So he was wounded, maybe he was hit, and he killed a man for wounding him, a young man for injuring me. He says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. So Lamech's boast was one of unlimited revenge. He'd only been wounded, but he responded with murder. In other words, there was no limit to his revenge. And Jesus is saying that our capacity for forgiveness should match Lamech's for revenge. It's limitless. The measure of forgiveness is measureless. It's unlimited. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, Love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Literally, that means love does not count up wrongdoing. Or love keeps no record of wrong. So, let's all take a moment here to look in the closets of our own hearts. Let's look in our own closets and see if we have one of those boxes sitting on a shelf in there with a list of sins that we hold against someone else. Or perhaps yours is not a box with a list of sins, but is in fact a filing cabinet, alphabetized and categorized of all the sins against you. Jesus is calling you to clean it out. To shred the papers. To burn the files. The cleansing of our sin goes all the way down. Love is not resentful. We forgive as we've been forgiven. Here's another test you can can perform. 
In Ephesians 4.32, we're told, Be kind and tender-hearted to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be kind and tender-hearted. Harkens to our own passage where we are called to forgive your brother from your heart. There is a kind of disposition that leads towards forgiveness. One of kindness and tender-heartedness. Which means, if you feel towards someone a kind of hardness of heart, a stiffness in your soul, a frostiness in your disposition, that is a pretty solid indicator that you have unforgiveness, that you have bitterness in your heart. Jesus calls us to practice unlimited forgiveness, an astonishing and a transformative call. But what all does that entail? How exactly do we practice it? What does forgiveness look like? Well, this brings us to point number two this morning, the method of forgiveness. The method of forgiveness. Now, we live in a day when apologies have been weaponized. We live in a day when apologies have been weaponized. You can be pressured into apologizing for things that are not sin, for things that are not wrong, for things that are not true. It's been weaponized by faux victims who guilt trip people for how you make them feel. But it has also been weaponized by real perpetrators who like to go on TV, who like to get an interview with Oprah, so they can go on TV and say, I'm sorry for what I did, it doesn't really represent who I am. I'm sorry for what I did, but that's not really reflective of my core values. So in these things, forgiveness has been weaponized in our day so that there is actually great confusion, general confusion, over what forgiveness actually is and how forgiveness actually works. So you ask, well, what is forgiveness and how does it work? Thank you for asking. I would like to give you an answer. When someone has wronged someone else, they have not just transgressed or broken a rule. They have not just transgressed or broken a law. They have also incurred a debt. When you sin against someone, you have incurred a debt, an obligation. We see this in the parable from our passage where Jesus likens our sin to the debts of a servant and to the debts of a fellow servant. They both owed a debt to be forgiven. And we also see this reflected in the Lord's Prayer, where we are taught to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, Matthew 6, verse 12. So when someone wrongs you, they are in your debt. They owe you a confession. Now this is really important to get because it tells us forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a transaction. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a transaction that needs to take place. And this is where exa- exactly where many modern grief counselors, like blind guides leading the blind, stagger off into the marshlands of emotions. They want forgiveness to be a feeling. They want it to be driven by how you feel, that you become a forgiving person, instead of going and doing the act of forgiving. So suppose you get in a quarrel. Let's consider a hypothetical. Suppose you get into a conflict with someone. Not that, not that any of you do, but we've all seen something about this on a movie once or twice. 
But for hypothetical sake, let's suppose you get into a fight. Let's suppose, men, that you get into a fight with your wife. You had to work late, but you forgot to call home and let your wife know. And so you arrive home late, and dinner has been ready, and is getting cold on the table, and she needs a break with the kids, and why didn't you call? And you try to explain, you try to excuse yourself, you try to explain with the boss, and you know, the more you're talking about it, you're realizing she's not really taking into account the fact that you didn't want to stay late, and you actually wanted to come home and eat, and you don't really like the pressure that your boss is putting on you, and so you blurt out to her, you know what, I think you're kind of being selfish, and by the way, Johnny's wife, Jill over here, she has no problem when he works late. This is where you call the pastor and I say, buddy, work it out yourself. (laughs) You dug this hole. You got to get out. Later in the evening, when you go and try to make this right, you owe your wife a debt. And the debt you owe first is to fess up to your guilt for the wrong that you did. You need to be honest. Remember our studies from confession? Confession means to confess with. It means to say with someone. And so it's it's being honest. This is what I did, and it was wrong. The first part of your debt you owe is to confess what you did. I'm sorry, dear. I should not have said that. It was wrong. I did mean it at the time. But I shouldn't have meant it. I was trying to hurt you, and I'm terribly sorry. That was vile, what I said. The first thing you have to do is plead your guilt, take responsibility, ask for forgiveness. But that only deals with the sin. You have to do that first. That's necessary that you do, but that might not be all that you have to do. You may owe restitution as well. You may owe restitution as well. Biblical justice requires payment plus restitution. Exodus 22, verse 12 Biblical justice requires payment plus restitution. So you have to pay for the insult, but sometimes you have to pay for the damages as well, ranging from double what you stole, Exodus 22, verse 7, down to a fifth of what you stole for lesser offenses, Numbers 5, verse 7. And gentlemen, just a little heads up, a little friendly marital advice. If you compare your wife to another man's wife, that is a double offense. And so we're talking restitution that includes chocolates, flowers, cards, and probably a trip to the Bahamas. In first service, that got some claps and amens. And I assume that you feel the same way, ladies, in this one. Zacchaeus is a wonderful example of this for us. In Luke 19, he came, comes to believe in Jesus. But in his repentance... He realizes as a crooked tax collector, he didn't just owe people an apology for his for defrauding them. His repentance looked like apologizing with paying them back four times what he had stolen them. Zacchaeus repented and his sincerity was evident in his immediate desire to make restitution. And the same hold true for us today. Did you gossip about someone? then you need to seek their forgiveness, but also look to restore their good name. Did you lie? Then you need to come clean about your lie, but then also restore the harmship done by your falsehood. Did you, in a fit of rage, break a lamp? 
then you need to not only fess up to your anger, but also buy a new lamp. And maybe a better one. Now for the offended party, so this is that's the person who caused the offense, that's the person who caused the sin. What about the offended party? What about the one sinned against? We often, here's our problem, we often don't feel like forgiving. We often don't feel like forgiving. The wife in this example very well may very well feel like the last thing she wants to do is forgive her husband. But forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a transaction. It's not feeling-driven. Here it is. It's gospel-driven. It's not feeling-driven. It is gospel-driven. True forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness this world can't know but longs to know, is gospel-driven, grace-driven. You have to put on Christ. You have to let the grace of, of Christ rule in your heart. You have to preach the gospel to yourself again, and then, likewise, go extend the same forgiveness you've received. More on this in a minute when we get to point number three. However, this is a point where we need to be very careful. This is a point where we need to be careful because of all the confusion in our day regarding forgiveness and also because of the fallen condition that we are all in. So I want to make two critical clarifications here. Two critical clarifications. First, while extending forgiveness, you're the offended person, someone sinned against you, you're the wife in our example, while extending forgiveness, it is lawful for you to lay out the damage is done against you. It is lawful for you to point out needs for restitution. It's not unforgiving to say, yes, I forgive you, I really do, from the bottom of my heart, as God in Christ has forgiven me, I forgive you, but here are the things we need to talk through. Here are the things we need to work out. Here's where restitution needs to happen. That is lawful for you to do. And sometimes it is necessary for us to do it. Sometimes the offense are so complicated or so hard that they almost need a, a legal working through. Sometimes it is necessary for us to do this. It's lawful for us to do it. Sometimes it's necessary for us to do it. But I want to point out that it's rarely glorious for us to do it. It's lawful, but it's not particularly godly. Sometimes you need to do it, but here's what you should always remember. It is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. It is the glory. In other words, it is godlike to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19, verse 11. And that's what we should aim for most of the time. Not everything has to be addressed. And not everything has to be addressed exhaustively. Because again, remember, the measure with which you use will be used against you. The second clarification we need to make, the second clarification I want to make is this. What if you're the party offended, the party that was sinned against, the person who fault, was faulted? What if the offender doesn't repent? What if the person that hurt you doesn't apologize? What if they don't come and ask you for forgiveness? If forgiveness is a transaction, how can that happen if they don't ask for it? If they're not looking for it? If they're not confessing? If they're not admitting guilt? Well, let's take this answer in two parts. And here we have to get down into the real nature of forgiveness, the gospel in forgiveness. 
First, according to our text, what is the basis of our forgiveness? What is the basis? Well, in this text, in the parable, we are the servant that was forgiven a huge debt, but who struggles to forgive a fellow servant for smaller debts. That's us. God in this parable is the master. God in this parable is the king who forgives a massive debt. The debt of our sin, right? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So we owe God the ultimate debt. We owe God an eternal debt, but he forgave us. He forgave us, and Ephesians says he did it for Christ's sake. He did it because Jesus paid our debt. But what Christ accomplished for our forgiveness, he accomplished 2,000 years before you ever confessed your sin. Do you understand this? Christ accomplished your forgiveness 2,000 years before you ever repented and believed in Jesus. 2,000 years before you even committed your sin. 2,000 years before you were even born. Everything about your forgiveness was settled all the way back then except your experience of it. God's decision to forgive you, Jesus' payment of your debt, all that was settled way back then. The only thing that was lacking was your experience of forgiveness. And this leads us to the second part of this. We experienced then the forgiveness of God when we confessed our sins and believed in Jesus. And the burden of our guilt was rolled away. This is when the transaction proper occurred. You repented and turned to Jesus. Say you did it five years ago. Say five years ago you got saved. You repented and believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that's when the transaction proper occurred. And we are to imitate the very same thing. We are to forgive as we've been forgiven. Which means we prepare it in our heart. We purpose it in our heart. Maybe long before it ever comes. We put it in a box. We wrap it all up with festive gift wrap. We put a bow on top and we extend that forgiveness out eager for you to take it. Just take it. This is for you. This is a grace gift. This is goodness for you. I've got this for you. Someone has wronged you. Someone has hurt you, but they haven't repented. They haven't confessed. Can you forgive them? Yes. Can they experience forgiveness? No. No. You forgive them in your heart. You hold it out to them like the incredible and the precious gift of grace that it is. And you look for them. Just like the father of the prodigal son stood at the roadside looking for his son, eager for his son's return. You stand there eager for them to receive that gift from you just as soon as they'll repent and take it. You want them to take it. Just as God in Christ Jesus purchased your forgiveness and was eager for you to take it. Now that sounds good. That sounds good. But as C.S. Lewis said once, we all like the topic of forgiveness until it is us that has to do the forgiving. We all like the idea of being forgiven. We all like the idea of unlimited forgiveness. We all like the idea of people having to forgive us whether we're ready to, to confess or not. But when we flip it on our head and we have to do all that, who can do it? Who can, how do we do this? How do we practice limitless forgiveness? How do we forgive from our heart? Well, this brings us to the third and final point this morning, the motive of forgiveness. The motive of forgiveness. And all I've said that I hope was helpful, nevertheless, this is really where this passage shines. 
This is what this text really teaches us about forgiveness. It's the motive. It's the fuel that drives it. The parable in this story begins with the master settling accounts with his servants. And we're told one servant owed him an astronomical amount, uh, 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. How much is 10,000 talents? Well, one talent was the equivalent of about 20 years' work for a day laborer. So one talent was 20 years' work, and this man owned 10,000 talents. So we're talking about, probably in today's money, billions of dollars. Scholars estimate maybe $12 billion in today's money. It's just an astronomical, it's a ridiculous amount. Uh, People probably chuckled when Jesus said it. It's just ridiculous how much this man owes. And so the king orders the man and his wife and his children and all that they have to be sold. Now this is a picture of our situation before God. Each of us has sinned against an infinitely holy and almighty God. We owe God a debt we could never repay. An eternity of service will never repay the debt we owe because of our sin. And that's why the Bible teaches the awful truth of the eternal punishment of sin. We have all sinned against God horribly. And when our day of counting comes, what will we do? What will we do? When this, the servant, is a model, he's desperate. He falls on his knees. He begs for mercy. Be patient with me, and I will pay back everything. Well, this, is, of course, is not true. He could never pay that much back. But incredibly, we're told that the king takes pity on the servant, cancels the debt, lets him go scot-free just like that. And verse 27 tells us the king did this out of, out of pity. He did it out of compassion is the same word. It, it literally means he felt for the guy. His heart went out for the man. And so he did far more abundantly than the servant would have even dared to ask. The servant just wanted more time, but the king said, I'll forgive you completely. Unlimited forgiveness is yours. He canceled all that man's massive debt. And that is our salvation. That is the gospel we celebrate. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more so. It super abounds. Our sin against God is an incredible debt which we can never repay. But God in His goodness offers us a grace that is greater than all our sin. That's the song, right? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. The king canceling his servant's debt is an incredible parable of our salvation. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The real zinger in this story is the second half of it. After receiving such amazing grace from this king, the servant goes out. He hunts down a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. And we're told he sees him in verse 28 and began choking him, saying, pay what you owe. Now this is a hundred denarii. This is no small matter. This is about a hundred days wages. So again, in today's money, by the same scale, it's probably like $16,000. So that's no small amount, $16,000, but that's that's no $12 billion either. That's no small amount, but that's not, that's not $12 billion. Nevertheless, the servant refuses to forgive his fellow servant. 
And news of this travels back to the king who we're told in his great wrath rebukes the merciless servant, reverses his decision, turns him over to tormentors until his debt is paid in full. And Jesus concludes the parable by warning that his father will do the same to each one of us if from the heart we do not forgive our brother. We learn from this passage, we learn from this parable, that the father expects his forgiveness to be imitated. He expects his forgiveness to be imitated. That we are to see the great debt that God has forgiven us. The sins that we have committed. The transgressions of God's laws that we have committed. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Which God has then canceled. God in his mercy has set aside when he nailed it to the cross that his son was hung on. And we are to imitate that kind of forgiving grace. This is the great motive of forgiveness. It's not a subjective feeling. It's an objective truth. It's the truth of the gospel. The truth that if God has forgiven us all that debt. That's what the master says to the servant. I forgave you all that debt. If God has forgiven us the sky-high, mild debt we owed Him, how can we not therefore go and have mercy on those who owe us a hundred denarii? So, just to graph this out, and I've done this before with you, but I think it's helpful. Say your $12 billion, say your $12 billion debt was a mile-high bar. You're putting this on a graph, it'd be a mile-high bar, right? You can imagine just... Like a mile-high bar sticking up right over us right over here, okay? On that scale, what's $16,000? What's $16,000 equal to? If $12 billion bet is a mile-high graph line, a mile-high bar, $16,000 is equal to about 7 feet. So we're talking about the difference between me to Copley High School and me to Bert. And... Get this clear too. What does the $16,000 debt, what is the 100 denarii, what does that represent? In the parable, what does the 100 denarii represent? Sins that people have committed against us? We're saying, pay me back, pay me back, pay what you owe. No. It represents the sins that we don't want to forgive. The big sins, the painful sins, the ones that keep us up at night, the ones that we struggle to forgive. They're big to us, but Jesus just says, listen, in the grand scheme of eternity in my kingdom, they're painful, they're hurtful, but they're only seven feet high. The debt you owed me, 5,280 feet. And I forgave you all that debt. That is the truth of the gospel. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He paid all our debt. So that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more so. And living in that truth, that reality living in that mile-high grace, enjoying it, treasuring it, loving it, loving the God who gave it to you, 
What that does is, invert it for a minute. It's like it makes it a mile deep well that we can draw all the grace we need to forgive people their lesser debts. This is where we find all the power, all the fuel, all the mercy and compassion. This passage talks about that we need to forgive other people. We find it in how much God has been merciful and compassionate to us. If he has forgiven us all that debt, how can we not also go and forgive others likewise? This is gospel-driven forgiveness. This is, this is where the root of our compassion is not in our emotions, and it's not in how much time has passed, and it's not if we feel like they have learned their lesson or yet. It's all based on the compassion that God has given us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we forgive the debt our brothers owe us, our imitation of what God has forgiven us is on display. Our forgiving imitates God's forgiving. So that more than just releasing a debt, when we forgive our brother, what we're doing is we are passing on to them the grace that we have received. We are becoming a conduit through which grace can flow. What we're doing in that moment is we are actually gospelizing them. We're actually evangelizing the sinner by living out the gospel of grace to them. We're embodying the gospel. We are incarnating something of the glory of the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And in the end, this really is the overarching aim in forgiving our brother. It's about glorifying God. It's about making much of him and the glory of his grace. So in conclusion, let me say, I think we have, if I do say so myself, a pretty tidy church here. We're a pretty tidy church. We have solid doctrine I thank God we have a good statement of faith. Our service is orderly, and so many of you serve generously. And I'm thankful for all of that. I like tidy. Tidy is good. Tidy is not bad. But tidy is not always clean. And what I want, and more than me, what Jesus wants, is for all of us to be clean. He wants us to be clean in every corner, clean in every closet, Clean up in the attic all the way down into the basement. The cleansing of our sin is to go all the way down. But that's not going to happen unless we forgive as we've been forgiven. Unless we grasp the scale of God's great forgiveness of us and then go and practice likewise. Unless we practice unlimited forgiveness that's fueled by the truth of the gospel and not the trappings of our own wishy-washy emotions. We need gospel-driven forgiveness, and we need it every single day. Let's pray. Well, God in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, it truly is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we need it when there is conflict. We need it when there is pain caused by a brother or sister in the faith against us, Lord. It muddies the water. It muddies the, the water of love and relationship, and it's hard to see through. It's hard to navigate, and that's why we need your word, Lord. That's why we need to see that it's not about us, it's not about them, it's about you and your great compassion to us. And your love, your mercy, plows the way forward. So God, I pray for everyone here today, wherever you're convicting souls, wherever you're Equip, uh, evicting, uh, convicting people right now, Lord, I pray that they would deal with their unforgiveness, that they would repent of it and go and be restored in relationship to others. 
And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we are equipped for the the opportunities we're going to have later today, later this week, where we need to practice the grace of forgiveness. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.